Let's take our Bibles, please, for our Bible study and join me in 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11, as we continue in our series on the life of David. Let me ask you this question while you're turning there. Do we ever use music to teach little kids ideas? Like what? The ABCs. Anything else that we teach kids via music? Okay, oh, there's one I never even thought of. Jesus loves me. When it comes to little kids' songs, we can teach all kinds of things. We can teach counting. We can teach days of the week. We can teach animals. We can teach about body parts. We can teach about the idea of good conduct, the manners, different things like that, Bible verses, Bible truths. We teach them through songs. There's one song that little kids sing that is so impacting in its truth, but we adults often forget about it. And we, we, as time goes by, we forget to even think about, oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. For your Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Then we do the hands, and then we do the feet. I wish David, the big psalmist, the big musician, had remembered that. We're in a story of his life. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 11 where David, all of a sudden, he falls into sin that makes every one of us shake our heads. He gets into a sin of adultery, which eventually leads to murder. And we sit here and we go, wow, David, how could you do that? That's horrible. But before we go any further, let's remind ourselves, there go I, but by the grace of God. Any one of us can fall into any types of sin. Maybe we're not into big sin like David, But maybe here in this room, there's the battle, the struggle with temper, gossip, lust, pornography, greed, materialism, bitterness. Maybe there's there's a struggle with lying, cheating, dishonesty. Maybe there's the struggle that's going through with disrespect, not loving your spouse, not following the leadership of the home, not respecting parents not training kids, losing temper. There's a lot here in the story that David has that is for you and me today. It is a pivotal time in David's life. Up to this point, what we've been studying is all about David's triumphs, how he has experienced success and success and blessing after blessing. From this point on, his life will be filled with some success but a lot of tragedy. The story pivots right here. All of a sudden, we've ascended to the top. Now we're on the downhill slope. And what we have in 2 Samuel is one simple lesson in 2 Samuel 11. There's more to the whole account. We're only dealing with half of it today, just chapter 11. From that one story, this is the simple lesson. Don't dabble with sinful temptations, no matter what they be. If they be the anger, if they be the greed, if they be the gossip, if they be the temper, if they, if they be the lust, if they be the uncontrol of mouth or heart, don't dabble with it. Instead, what you should do is run from it or repent of it as soon as possible. Five reasons why in this text, just in the first part of the story. Number, reason one, number one reason is this, because if somebody like David can fall into terrible sin, so can we. Let's let's remind ourselves about David. Let's remind where he's been up to this point. 
Up to this point in this life, David far exceeds me and I would guess most of us in this room. There may be a few of you that excel above all of us. But the majority of us would say David was head and shoulders above us. David, as you go through the story, David displayed great faith. David went to battle against Goliath. Most of us wouldn't have done that at age 16. David did. David had experienced the the moving of the Spirit upon him to write dozens of psalms that are beautiful sonnets about the greatness, the, the majesty of God. And when you read them, your heart is just moved by the fact that he is drawn so close to the Lord. David had exercised great self-control, great self-restraint when he could have killed Saul who was trying to kill him. And he was urged to do so, but he didn't give in. He resisted. David, great patience. Oh, I fall so far short on this one compared to David. David had great patience waiting for God to bring him to the throne. He waited some 15 years before he finally got there. And then when he got there, he had to wait another seven years before all of the tribes would join him. Patience. He's a guy who experienced great blessings. In our story, we're in chapter 12, chapter 11, but if you were to go back to chapter 5, And just read before we get to 11. There's just a simple phrase that talks about David. And it says this, David went on and grew great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. And we read in verse 12, And David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for his people Israel's sake. Oh, blessed of God time and time again. And then then we have his devotion. His devotion to wanting to worship leaves so many of us in the trail of his dust. This guy wanted to worship God and bring God to other people to the point that even though the Ark of the Covenant had been forgotten and put into a shed for some 75 years, David was the one that brought it out, got it to the center court of Jerusalem so that everybody could once again get back to worship. And he says, God, I want to build a temple for you. I want to do something great. And when God said, no, you're not going to build it, David didn't argue, but David got on board and he still helped in the preparation for the temple because he wanted this this edifice to not only magnify God, but to be an opportunity for all of God's people to worship and get closer to the Lord and be a witness to so many people. And yet he falls. Amazing. This godly man And yet he makes such a tragic mistake. Now at the point, the time of the mistake, okay, we know that God has described him as a man after God's own heart up to this very moment, Uh, not only in the Old Testament but in the New Testament, that he's got this walk with the Lord. And yet for all of that achievement and that closeness, what happened? Well, at the moment that he falls into sin with Bathsheba, when he says yes to temptation, he's been king for about 20 years. That makes him 50 years old. So he's in that, some of us would say, in the prime of his life. Some of you would say he's really over the hill. Okay, all depends on our perspective of age. But he's about 50 years of age, old enough to, yeah, okay, we know that. He is really well informed about God's word knows the God's law very well. How do I know that? Well, if we were to turn back to Deuteronomy, there was a command given in Deuteronomy before there was kings 
When God said, one day you're going to want to be like other nations, you're going to ask for a king, God says, I will appoint a king. Don't you choose them on your own. Let me appoint, appoint them. And then, here's what I want the kings to do. And we read in that text, when he sits upon the throne of his kingdom, the king shall write himself a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priest. It shall be with him. He shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all his words of the law, these statutes. He's, he's got to be having his own personal copy of the Bible. That was so rare in the Old Testament. So rare through most of history. But the king had to have one. We know David did. How do we know that? Well, even if we look at that occasion at the Ark of the Covenant where they tried to move it, first of all with the animals and the cart and all of a sudden it shook and one of the men put his hands up and Uzziah was killed because of it and David said, hold it, let's put the, put the Ark of the Covenant right here, let's leave it there for several months. They left it there for three months. Then David comes back and tells the priest and the people, for we sought him not after due order. He says, we were supposed to have the men carry the ark. Where did David get that information? David went to the word of God. That was his copy. And David had to know that, learn that, so he could move the ark the right way. In fact, if you go through the books of Psalms, you read time and again how David says, I love thy word. I meditate upon it day and night. So we know David had this awareness of the Word of God. He had a deep devotion to the Word of God. He would have what we would say as daily devotions. He was very consistent with it. Even at the point when he's 50 years of age, he's there as king for a period of time, and he knows that the Word of God warned kings, specifically had some statements that said, kings, be careful of certain things. He knows that. He also knows that the word of God clearly says, thou shalt not commit adultery. The word of God clearly, he knows this. He knows that the word of God clearly says, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. David's fully aware of it. David has all this understanding, has this walk with the Lord. And yet, despite all of what he knew, despite the fact that he had done good up to this time, despite the fact that God had blessed his life, despite the idea that he is walking with the Lord, had grown so much in his walk with the Lord, despite the fact that he has been privileged time and time and time again, he gets involved with great wickedness. How? How can a man like that fall? Well, if he can fall, so can we. Be careful. Be careful. Maybe that's why the writer, in, uh, under the inspiration of the Word of God, wrote to you and I, churches, in the New Testament. He writes these words. Now, all these things, the stories of the Old Testament, all these things happened unto them for examples to us. He goes on. They are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. In other words, oh, that last phrase is just the idea. We live in far different days than they do. We live closer to the return of Jesus Christ. And he goes on and says, Therefore let him that thinks he stands take heed lest... That's to you and me. That's the warning that says, Don't dabble with sinful temptations. How could he do it? Because here's what, here's what the bottom line is. David fell, as godly as he was, as good as he had been doing, he fell because he simply chose to forget God. 
He chose to just forget God for an afternoon. The same reason when you are tempted to gossip and you give in to it, you forget that God is listening. The same reason when you are tempted to lie, to cheat on a work report, on a time card, on a tax uh, report, you choose to forget God. The same reason that you will lie to your parents or your spouse because you choose to forget God. Beware. Be careful. It can happen to any one of us. There's a second reason why we don't dabble with sin, why we don't fool with it, why we run from it. It's because secret sins don't stay secret. What you think nobody in this room knows, it won't stay secret. Be sure your sin will find you out. That's what God says. God says it's so clear. Now, when other kings are going off to war, that's what we read in chapter 11, verse 1. It came to pass, after the year was expired at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab, his servants with him, and all of Israel. They went out to destroy the children of Ammon and besiege Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. Okay, and so David's home. I don't know why David didn't go out to war. If, if we suggest something, it's only a, a guess. We don't know why David did. It's not because he's too old. Because in the previous chapter and at the, the after, right after this account, he goes to the battlefield. So 50 doesn't mean he was too old to go to war anymore. That's not the reason. So David is sleeping, it says in verse 2. But he gets up. He can't stay sleeping. Why not? I don't know. Neither do you. Did he go up on the rooftop where they'd have some type of, of patio? Did he go up there to get fresh air? Did he go up there because he had an upset stomach? Did he go up there because he wanted to pray and meditate at night? Because he couldn't sleep. He had insomnia. And so he thought he'd have time with the Lord. I don't know and neither do you, but he did. And he goes up onto this rooftop. And when he's up on this rooftop, because his would be the highest... Uh, the highest home in the area, he's looking down on tiered homes and he sees that there's a lady down below in one of the homes. And this lady is bathing, washing fully. We don't know how much. We don't know. It just says that she's washing. And here she is and my question is, what is she doing taking a bath so late at night? Okay. My question is, how could he see her in the dark? You know, did she have lights turned on? You know, okay, I know, f f candles. Okay, well, I, I don't know. But it's just kind of like, boy, the enemy is slick in letting things get set. He knows, he knows our weaknesses and he can manipulate situations so it's so easy. So here he is, he's up there. And this is one of the rare times in the Old Testament that they use an adjective, very. Very beautiful. You see it at the end of verse 2. Usually it doesn't show up that way, but this is a very strong adjective. She was extremely good-looking, a knockout. She was a wow. Whew, takes the breath away. And so he's looking at her, and David does, the, does what he shouldn't be doing. It says in the next verse that it goes on, it says, and David sent and inquired after the woman. He he's now wants to know more about her. And he finds out the response is, she's the wife of Uriah, 
David's a military leader. He knows where his troops are. Uriah is one of his troops. He knows his troops are out of town. He knows Uriah is out of town. She knows she, he knows she's alone. He knows this is an opportune time to get away with, he thinks, to get away with dallying with his temptation. So he dabbles a little bit more. And as a result, he says, hey, come to my palace. He's sent for her. She comes to the palace. And it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it goes very quickly through this portion. She came, he lay with her. They had physical relationships. The one phrase that is kind of an odd phrase is that next phrase in the verse. It says that she was purified from her uncleanness. There are two possibilities. I don't want to be um, coarse or harsh be pointed, but deal with this delicately. There's two possibilities here. The possibility of this verse is dealing with after they had physical relationships. Because in Leviticus it says after a married couple had physical relationships, they were to purify themselves, go through a certain cleansing. Is that what this verse means? You mean to say after David and Bathsheba violated the law in committing adultery, they're going to follow the law. Is that what it means? That's a possibility. Do people ever do those things? Where they secretly violate the word of God and then they come and worship on Sunday? Or it's this possibility. It's the possibility that dealing with her monthly cycle that the lady was supposed to afterwards, she was supposed to cleanse herself after several days. Is that what it refers to? If that's what it refers to, then clearly, 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 this baby is not somebody else's. It's clearly David's baby. She knows that. They're totally aware of that. So whatever that passage says... It says that they had relationships and he sends her home. How quickly it's, it suggests the idea of that same night. And so she goes to her house and in David's mind, this was a secret sin. It was done at night. But the husband's away. It was in the privacy of the palace and his guards aren't going to tell or they die. And so she goes home. She resumes. It's not like they're carrying on a long-term affair here that people are going to say she moved into the palace. This is just a tryst. And we got away with it. Nobody knows about it. You know, it, it we, we did our thing, and it was fun, and it was thrilling, and it was exciting, and it felt good, and nobody knows, and we got away with it, and all of a sudden there's a note that comes. Very simple note, I'm with child. Secret sins don't stay secret. God has a way of bringing it out. There, there's a story in history about this one ship. It's a pirate ship in the late 1700s that was on coast, off the coast of America and into the Caribbean. And um, this ship by the name of Nancy is being tracked down by the British trip, the Sparrow, down in that area where the British Isles were down in the Caribbean. And they finally catch this ship. And when the troops are coming to board it to check the ship, the captain decides, I got to get rid of evidence. I got to get rid of all the paperwork of things that we have been hauling, things like that, and the ship log. So he puts it in a bag and he throws it overboard. And so they search the ship and they say, okay, you got to follow us to port. They follow to the port that they take them to. 
uh, there in Jamaica and they say we didn't find all the records. We don't know exactly wherever it came. He claims he bought it you know, uh, without, without piracy and, but we think this ship's been involved with piracy but we don't have the logs. So it's supposed to be going before the magistrate. The trial is there. There's, uh, all of the pirates on that one ship are being held and they don't have enough evidence so they decide just to delay for a few more days. See if any evidence comes up. Well, in the meantime, the Abergaffany is the name of the other ship. The Abergaffany is sailing nearby and they see this carcass of a cow floating in the water. So one of the sailors gets permission. They hook that carcass to some hooks and they go shark fishing. And they're shark fishing and they get a big shark. They get the shark on board and then you're going to do what you're going to do with the shark. You know, we're going to eat it. And so they cut the shark open and this is good right before lunch. All the stuff that comes out includes a burlap bag. They open up the burlap bag and what do you know? There's the log. There's all the paperwork. It's water stained but it's, it's legible. There it is from the ship the Nancy. And guess where they're going for their very next stop? They're going to the port where the trial is taking place. The captain of the ship gives to the magistrate these books. These books prove that all of those guys on the Nancy were guilty of piracy. They thought they had gotten rid of it and lo and behold it came back. Isn't it amazing how your sin will find you out? The weirdest situations, the strangest situations. The Bible is very clear about this. The Bible tells us that sexual sins do not, say, do not stay secret. If any of you are dabbling with this temptation, take, take note of what's happening when there is illicit relationships how easily sexually transmitted diseases can be occurring. How it's at a peak rate. Be sure your sin will find you out. The, the other sins, you may list them all off. Stealing doesn't stay secret. Cheating doesn't stay secret. Abusiveness doesn't stay secret. This dishonesty in the home, it doesn't stay secret. God makes it clear when he's talking and he says via parable that whatsoever you've spoken in darkness thinking that nobody knows, it's going to be heard in light. It's going to be, God is going to bring it to light one day. If a person like David can fall, you and I need to be careful. Because if we think we've got it secret and hidden, it won't stay there. Don't dabble. Run from it. Repent of it quickly. Third reason why. Because sin multiplies itself. It always does. It grows. It's like rabbits breeding. It just grows and grows. Do you remember years ago the advertisement for this particular brand of potato chips? You can't eat just one. That's the idea of sin. You don't just stop. You don't just say, oh, I'm going to just dabble a little bit. With just a little bit of cursing, it'll grow. I'm going to dabble a little bit with drugs. It'll grow I'll dabble a little bit with stuff on the screen that I shouldn't be looking at. It'll grow. It, it's like this other advertisement. Once you pop, you can't stop. Okay? That, that's the way sin is. And, and you and I, we, we just deceive ourselves at times. We, we just pause and we excuse it. But we don't realize the truth of it is we don't typically fall into sin. We walk into it. 
It's not like most of the time, it's not like sudden. There's been a preparation. There's been a dabbling for a period of time. We have greased the skids. And most of the time, we have put ourselves in vulnerable spots. We made provision for the flesh. We're living on the very edge thinking we can handle it. We can handle it. It's not that bad. We're, we, we start tolerating mild, minor types of uh, infractions that we can get away with and we're so-and-so and it won't, you know, and they grow. They always grow. And they become a snare in time where he says, know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants in little ways, you're going to become a servant to them. And they're going to trap you. The other day I'm coming up here. I'm coming up in the morning and as I come off of Oak Street and turn down here on 22nd Street, I turn and I see there's a pickup truck that's parked right there and some guys are getting out. I didn't pay any attention. I go down about a half a football field coming this direction and all of a sudden there's another pickup truck just like that but they have blocked off the road. I can't get through all the way across. So I do the obvious thing. I don't speed up, no, and go through the barriers. Okay. I backed up in somebody's driveway and I turned around and I started to head back to Oak Street. And wouldn't you know, those two guys that were jumping out of the pickup when I took the corner, they put up barriers. Now I'm stuck between all of these road barriers. I never intended that to happen. The guy didn't want me there. He obviously, by the language and the gestures he made at me, that he was saying I was really stupid to having turned there, but they hadn't the road blocked. But I turned, I went down, and now I'm trapped. That's the way it often happens. We often, we often get trapped and all of a sudden there we are. Well, David, David with his tryst, I find the story fascinating and revealing how David, it wasn't his sin with Bathsheba that all of a sudden, ooh, it happened. David's been, David's been building for this for a long time. He's put himself in a vulnerable spot. You see back in that passage that says kings ought to have their own Bible, in that same text it said this, the Lord God shall choose your king, but he not only shall have the word of God, but it says he shall not multiply to himself horses. Shall not. Why is that? Why isn't the king, when he's out in battle, why isn't he supposed to get all the horses from the enemy and keep them? Any idea? Any suggestion why God said, kings, don't do that? Because probably in time, what will the king start relying upon? The horses. The horses. And so they're not supposed to have this strong, strong, ultra-big military might lest they not follow the Lord. Watch what David did. When David went to battle, David howled or hewed, he hamstrung all the horses of those that he captured. He was very careful that he didn't build up the armaments from all of the troops. He had a good army. He kept them in shape, but he didn't make this massive army. He's told this. He's, they're told, don't let the king stockpile riches to himself or he'll become materialistic. What did David do? I have of my own. I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house. Even that which I kept, I have given a lot of it to the house of the Lord. And I have given, and that was the plan, to give a lot of this to the house of the Lord. David said, I've gone far and above what was expected of me. I didn't keep a lot of those riches. There was a third area that the king was not supposed to be dabbling with, lest he become totally reliant on the military or materialistic, lest he become immoral. 
he was told this, you shall not multiply wives to yourself. Why? Oh, I, I, know, we, I know that one, Pastor. One is more than anybody can handle. Okay. <laughs> you say that, we'll meet in counseling later on. Okay. But we know the truth of this. God never intended for multiple wives. It occurred, but it doesn't mean that God approved. Okay? The, the idea here is that he said, and he even made the comment, lest the man's heart be turned away from God. Now most all of us assume what that means is if he marries foreign wives in alliances, those wives would bring not only a peace treaty, but they'd bring their idols with them. That's true. And that happened especially to which king? Solomon. Especially to Solomon. But there's more to it, I think. Not only the foreign alliances, there's the self-gratification. Feeding the flesh as much and as often as he wants with all these ladies. And all of a sudden, not having to practice self-control. Any momentary desire, well, you can be satisfied. David, did he do this? Well, let's see. He married Saul's daughter. Then, in 1 Samuel 25, he married Abigail. And that passage says he married Ahinoam. And we read in 2 Samuel 3, he took Mecha, Haggath, Abitol, Eglah for his wives and concubines. Then we go to 2 Samuel 5, and it says he took him even more concubines and wives out of Jerusalem. David's got a harem. You go, what a man. What a fool. What a fool. No offense, Deb. Okay. The fool was he was playing to his fleshly desires. It's not that they're evil and wrong, but they can be satisfied and should be satisfied only in the legitimate marital relationship. So what happens here? Even though it was commonly accepted, even though that people said, you should have multiple wives, kings, it wasn't God's original plan. God's original plan was for one man and one woman that they be husband and wife. God never intended or promoted. He permitted, but he didn't promote. He never promoted this because it was, play, it was playing into sexual desires that would all of a sudden be, be troublesome as they were outside the original plan of God. And so here David is. David's got all of these ladies. He doesn't have to say no. And so he's on the rooftop. He sees her. He's aroused. He's excited. He's the king. He's not had to say no for months and months and years and years. He falls into sin. He's extremely vulnerable. Extremely to the point that, quite frankly, he loses his senses. You want to you see a person in rut? That's this text. That is this story of a man who does such stupid stuff. You know, it's wrong to be selling drugs, but it's really stupid to sell them right outside the police station, which has happened. That's what David does. The reason I say that, and I warn you that this can happen to you based on this text is watch what happens here. 
it said in verse 3, David sent and inquired after the woman. And somebody, somebody told David. And I, and I get the gist that it's not just information, but if you look at the way that the, uh, that the uh, translators put it, they're asking a question to David. Like, David, don't you know, is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David, be careful. David, because this one person gives him information that ought to make him stop. Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam. Do you know who Eliam is? Eliam is one of David's 33 most trusted warriors. He has been faithful to David for years. He was part of the original group of 600 or 400 that started with David. He has been loyal to David. He's off to battle. This is his daughter, David. Adultery is wrong, but this one's really stupid. And then he goes on, he says, and she's, and by the way, the son of Ahithophel, Ahithophel is David's closest advisor. He's an older man giving David advice. And Ahithophel, this is his granddaughter. This is, this is forbidden fruit Multiply, David. Don't touch these people. Touching anyone is bad. That's, that's not your wife. But touching this gal is especially dangerous because of who she is. Yeah. And then not only that, not only because of her dad and grandpa, but Uriah is one of your most loyal 33 soldiers. He's a Hittite who has converted to Judaism. And here he is, this guy followed you, listened to you. You led him to the Lord, David. This is his wife. And David, what does he do? Okay. After being identified, D David, he dabbles. He dabbles. So, so easy to deceive yourself, to make all these roadblocks disappear. And to say, no problem. So the problem is, she sends him a note and says, I'm pregnant. It doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop. Da David continues. He doesn't repent. But David continues and says, oh, we've we got to cover this up. We, we, we can surely cover this up. I'm going to get Uriah to come back. I'm going to send him a note. Send him home from the battlefield. He'll come home. He'll have a mini furlough. He can go and be with his wife. And then they can say it's his child. So Uriah comes back, and you all know the story. Uriah comes back, he reports to David. David says, how is it going in the battlefield? I'm so concerned about all my troops. I'm very worried about Joab, my general. Tell me. And David feigns this, this deep, deep concern for other people when David is only concerned about who? And so what happens? He says, go home. And the passage says he sends presents with them. The presents are food. Well, that makes sense. You can go home, be with your wife, and you don't have to go shopping for several days. You can just be the two of you. And so he sends them home, and the report comes back the next day, Uriah doesn't go home. Uriah basically says, I'm going to sleep at the king's door. How can I enjoy the, the benefits of being home when the soldiers, my comrades in arm, they're in the middle of the thick of the battle. I'm not going to have this self-pleasure while my brothers in arms are, are facing life and death. 
And David's got to think this through. It's got to, this got to work. I got to get this guy to go home. I got to cover this up. I know what I'll do. I'll get him drunk. Because if I get him drunk, he'll lose self-control. You see, David at this point is just, he's, he's getting desperate. And he's dealing with a guy who has greater character than David does. A guy who has greater loyalty to the vows that he has made to the king than the king has made towards him. And as a result, David says, okay, i got to get this guy drunk, so he'll go to his wife. And, and, and he says, but one more night. you got one more night. I'll send you back the next day, but drink with me. Let's do a few toasts. And so he gets him drunk. The Bible says, woe unto him that gives his friend strong drink. David's violating the word of God once again. David's assuming that Uriah is made up of the same stuff that David is. That give him a little push, he'll dabble. Uriah doesn't take the bait. Which teaches us, we don't have to give in. And so what happens? Uriah gets drunk, but he stays at the palace. So David decides, okay, I've told him I'm going to send him back to battle. I know what I'll do. I'll send a note. And in the note, it's going to say, Dear Joab, on the battle, you put Uriah at the very front. You get close to the walls, and then you bring all the troops back and leave Uriah up there and let him get killed accidentally in battle. And Uriah takes this sealed note. Loyal Uriah takes the note back to, to Joab. What if Uriah had opened the letter? He didn't. What would he have done when, it's, when he found out what was being done to him? You know, bottom line truth, the people we hurt the most are those who trust us the most. True? So what happens? They go to the battle. They have this thing. You read in the text that Joab picks a spot where there are valiant men. In other words, it's the best of the enemy troops. It's guaranteed they're going to overcome one man. So he puts him in the spot. Uriah is killed. David is guilty of indirectly murdering Uriah because he had planned this scheme, this whole thing. And when Joab sends the note back and says, hey, this is what happened, look at David's response. David's response in verse 25. David said to the messenger, thus you shall say unto Joab, let not this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle strong against the city. Overthrow it. Encourage. That's callous. Oh well. What may happen may happen. Win some. Lose some. It's not that big of a deal, Joab. It's a big deal. It's a big deal with God. By the way, big deal with you and me. How do you get to this point? You dabble. You dabble, and all of a sudden, it starts dominating. And for that reason, you better be careful. Does it ever happen in this world? Yeah. I recall how it may have happened here, here in some people. It did happen. People that we've ministered to years ago. How one person dabbled and dabbled with forbidden sex, and their way of covering it up was abortion. I recall dealing with somebody who was covetous, buying, 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 extended so much all of their credit cards and had to lie month after month 
to their spouse to keep from them finding out all of how in debt they were. I recall somebody who not only became dishonest, but their resolve resolve was, we're going to cover it up, I'm going to start gambling. And I'm gambling, and I'm going to make money and pay off all of these bills that my spouse doesn't know about. Now all of a sudden there's a gambling addiction. I know how there's been cases where people have lied and cheated against the person they're dating or their spouse, and to cover it up, the lies grow like Pinocchio's nose. There are cases where young people have disobeyed. They recruit siblings. They recruit friends to lie, to deceive, to embellish the story, to keep parents in the dark of where they were or what they were doing. Sin doesn't stay small. It grows like a cancer. That's why if, if you are tempted, don't dabble. If you've already given in, repent. Repent quickly. I'll give you another reason why. Okay, It's because of the ones we've said, but also this. It'll hurt others around you. It'll hurt others around you. It always. No man is an island. It's going to hurt others around you. We know that this sin hurt. We know that it hurt Uriah. That's that's a gimme. Uriah's dead. Uriah, the, the righteous man. Uriah, the man of character, is taken out. Bathsheba. I don't know what role she all plays. I don't know if she lit candles, if she had anything in mind when she was on the roof, I don't know. Neither do you. God doesn't talk about her. God talks about David and holds David responsible. I don't know what she, what she was involved with in this ploy with Uriah. I don't know what she knew about David's note that Uriah carried back to the front line. That was his death sentence. I don't know how she felt when the passage says she mourned for her husband Uriah. Was it genuine? Was there regrets? Did she genuinely love him? I don't know. I don't know what what the status is. But David got her involved in his sin. He got her involved in adultery. He got her involved with lying and covering it up. This man who was the leader, who was supposed to be the guide, who led the nation towards getting the ark and building a temple and leading the parade in worship, this guy is leading this woman down a wrong path. He hurt her. He hurt her deeply. What about his most trusted counselor, Ahithophel? The man that's been guiding him. You wonder if Ahithophel was bothered by this? Turn in your Bibles and go future, another few years. And if you were to turn to the time that all of a sudden you read about Absalom rebelling against David, you know who advised Absalom to start the rebellion against David? Ahithophel, David's trusted advisor. Why would Ahithophel turn against David? Because David had done something horrible with his granddaughter and grandson. Horrible. Horrible. Joab. Joab is a real peculiar character. He's shady all the way through scriptures. But remember, 
David employs Joab in this story to do his dirty work. He's got to set the troops at the front line. Let's get them as close to the balcony so those people can drop stones on them. The rest of us will fall back and they'll nail him good. Joab's the one that's organizing this. Now Joab has something over David. In fact, Joab tells the messenger, go back to the king and tell him how the battle went that we got beat the last time we attacked. And if he says to you, how is it you got so close to the walls? Weren't you aware of how that could be so dangerous? Then you just tell him, Uriah is dead. That'll shut David up. Joab later on, he doesn't listen to the king when the king says, don't slay Absalom. He does his own thing. Joab later on, when he finds out that David's, he, is, he is wooing a new general to be over all the army, Joab kills Amasa silently and David doesn't do anything to him. Why? Joab's got David. He's, got, he's holding over him. And the passage says Joab becomes over all the armies. And David, David he doesn't get rid of Joab. Because Joab's got David until later on when David says to his son Solomon, he says, the first thing you do as new king, you get rid of Joab. You have him executed for all of his crimes. Oh, all these people get hurt. You just list them off. Okay? There's all these people that get hurt by David's sin. But there's somebody we didn't mention. There's a group of people that's not mentioned that so far in our message, um, look down at verse 17. The men of the city went out and fought with Joab and his army, and there fell some of the people of the servants of David, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Who's the other people? The other soldiers that got killed. What's that mean? That means that not only Uriah was killed, but some soldiers. That means, David, you have created more widows and fatherless kids in your domain than had to be there. You hurt many people, David. People that you don't even think about. That's the way sin goes. Sin doesn't just hurt you. People say this all the time. We'll get a divorce and it won't hurt the kids. Are you serious? I can have an affair and it won't hurt anybody. Are you serious? It hurts everybody you surround. Pastors might say, I can get away with dishonesty and deceit. And when they fall, who gets hurt? The entire body. The entire body. For some of you, you know what I'm saying is true because your family went through it when a dad or a mom did something that hurt the entire family. Years later, Got it, folk. That's why we run from it. That's why we repent of it, ASAP. Because it'll hurt others. And let me give you the last thought this morning. It'll offend God. This should be the primary thought, but it's the last one in our study. It'll, it's gonna, God's, gonna, God's not going to be excited. God's not going to be happy with you. We read at the end of the chapter, before we go into the next one, this thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It displeased the Lord. At this point, David tried to hide the sin, but God saw. At this point, God has been silent, supposedly. God has been silent, but he didn't approve. 
Silence does not mean approval. God, God has been patient. Patient doesn't, patience of God doesn't mean go ahead and keep on doing what's wrong. Because God comes to a point and says, silence is done. I will intervene more than just in the conscience, which we'll, we'll see in the next couple of weeks. I'm going to intervene from outside. And God, all of a sudden, here it is. The reality of whom the Lord loves, the Lord chastens. I love you. You're the apple of my eye. I've got to chasten you, son, because you've gone too far. You've not listened to me. You've not responded to my conviction. You have dabbled, and then you deceive yourselves, and now you're continuing to let it dominate you. I've got to rescue you. I'm going to chasten you. And David couldn't turn to the Lord and say, but God, I couldn't help myself. God doesn't buy it. David couldn't say, she was so beautiful. And she agreed. God doesn't buy it. David couldn't say, it's her fault. She was on the roof. No. David couldn't argue. I've done so much for you already, God. Look at all that I've given to you. Look, I'm the king. I have authority. I can do with my troops what I want. No. 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 I've sacrificed. I've given so much money to your cause. I've written some beautiful songs. Man, I've, I, I've just, I even brought the ark to Jerusalem. Give me a break. I deserve this. Besides, it's only one-time act. And you know what? Others have done it. None, of it. none of it flies with God. None of it. Because God has said, Be ye holy. And you sang about it this morning. You sang holy, holy, holy. Then you better live it. You don't dabble. You don't dabble. We don't come today and say before God Almighty, what I've been doing is okay, God, because what I'm doing isn't as bad as what David did. Uh, what I've done for you in all these years so far, God, just one little dabbling doesn't hurt. Besides, I'm 50 years older. Uh, you know, I should have few privileges. Uh, here I am, God. I'm a, I'm a parent. I'm an authority. Uh, Lord, I, I'm a senior saint. I, I'm a senior in high school. So I should have some privileges. I'm a deacon. I'm a boss of a company. So I can steal. It doesn't make it. I can lie. I can, I can do whatever. You know, God, I've done so much. You know, besides, I, I, I'm not broadcasting. Nobody knows about it. And I sit in worship. Here I sit this morning and I sang the songs and I glorified you, God, and I praised you. Therefore, it shouldn't bother you what I've been dabbling with, with you know, at home, on the computer, with my finances. Nobody knows. Besides, I pick up my Bible, I pray, I read, and I'm a really nice person. So God, you got me. Here I am, aren't I a gem? With secret sin, forbidden fruit that I'm dabbling with. Remember this the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Remember this, friend, that this is true. You don't, you don't run from the Lord by dabbling in sin. You stay close to the Lord because you're gonna need him to help you overcome. Remember this, that if you have dabbled in sin, 
You need to run back to God. A-S-A-P. Right now for forgiveness. Right now. Right now. Because seek ye the Lord while he may be found. While he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. The unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. And he will have mercy upon him. To our God. You go back. Why? He will abundantly pardon. You run this morning to the Lord because if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't dabble. Don't deceive. Don't get dominated. You run now back to the Lord. You get close to the Lord. You don't do what happened a few years ago in Minneapolis. Somebody, they stole a car. When the police heard about this particular car being stolen... They immediately went to the news networks all over Channel 4 and Channel 5 or the big channels there in Minneapolis, St. Paul. They went to them and said, God, broadcast. Whoever stole this such and such a car, they need to contact the police immediately. Yeah, right. Was the car so special? No. But on the front seat of the car, the person who owned the car was headed for a friend's house. They stopped real quickly at another spot and it was while they stopped at another spot that this car got stolen. They had on the front seat a bottle, uh, I'm sorry, a bag of, of crackers, saltine crackers that were all laced with arsenic. The reason being is that friend who they were going to get to, they had, they had a rat problem in their garage. And they prepared this with arsenic to poison the rats but somebody stole the car. Whoever stole the car, chances are they would eat the crackers. And the police were trying frantically to rescue this person from eating these crackers. But you and I both know. Whoever stole that car isn't thinking, the police are trying to help me. But they were. God is trying to help you. God is trying to bring you to a place where it's safe and secure. God is saying, repent. Come back to me. Call upon me. If you've never asked me for forgiveness of all your sins, call upon me to be your Savior. If you're my child, oh, come back to me. Come back to me. Quickly. Because you're in a dangerous spot. Don't dabble. Don't be deceived. Don't let it dominate. You repent. Get close to the Lord. I would invite you this morning to sing with me a song of closing. If you are genuine about you and your walk with the Lord, to sing a prayer to the Lord asking Him to search us. And here you are this morning as we sing and you say, I've got to talk to somebody. I've got to make sure of my forgiveness, my eternal destiny. We're going to have staff head to these doors right now. They're going to be there. They'll talk with you. We're not going to think that if somebody walks over there, ooh, look at, oh, they must be involved with something really bad. It's not what we're going to think. But we're going to help you. If you are here and you want some help, then why don't you go that direction? If you know the words, sing them with your prayer eyes shut. Otherwise, join me as we sing and say, God, search me. Search me, O God, and know my heart today. Try me, O Savior, know my thoughts, I pray.
Help us to do that. Cleanse us, purify us, protect us, help us to be wise, to be close to you, to honor you in our thoughts and our deeds, and to be very, very careful this week. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. See you tonight. <laughs>